Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Millennial in the Middle. I'm Connor DeLynn. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm going to share with you an interview that I actually did back in December, and I've been holding on to this and excited to share it with you now. Um, I interview a gentleman named Graham Mitchell, who is the city manager of El Cajon. Uh, El Cajon is in California. It's about a half hour inland of San Diego. And uh, this is a fascinating conversation. Now, if you have no idea what a city manager is or does, don't worry. I didn't have the greatest idea of that either, but we're going to get into what that is and uh, what his day-to-day looks like. And knowing what a city manager does and his role in a very diverse city in California really is a good lens to look at the current political climate that we are in and some of the issues that he has faced and how his city has dealt with that. I think it gives us a real-world perspective on issues that sometimes you know are easy to just read articles about, but we really don't get how this affects people in the day-to-day. And so I think you, you can learn a lot from this. The other side is I think often when we talk about politics and government, we just think big government or federal government. We think of, you know, the president and senators and the stuff we read about, you know, on your news articles. But often local government and small government has much more of an impact on your day-to-day life. And Graham talks about how that is true in some really cool ways that I think might uh, change some of your perspectives on government in general and hopefully allow us to focus more on small government, uh, knowing that that really can be something that, one, we can have an impact on ourselves, and two, that we'll really see a difference in our lives there. Um, And then the biggest takeaway for me is we talk about, uh, obviously, you know, and, and I did the recap episode of 2020 when I talked about really the three biggest stories of 2020 being coronavirus, Uh, number one in the pandemic, number two being the election and Donald Trump, and number three being the Black Lives Matter movement and the call for uh, social justice in a way that we really hadn't seen since the 1960s. And that unfortunately pitted a lot of people in this, you know, two-way thinking of, well, this uh, this is black people versus police. And it set up kind of this otherization that we've talked about as being so scary when we set up these extreme sides and really trying to find the middle ground. And I think Graham is a great person to talk about that middle ground because he is really uh, in charge of the police department, the fire department, and first first responders in his city, while at the same time, he has duty and responsibility to his citizens. So he has to look out for both of them. And I think how he has struck a balance here and some advice he gives us will help all of us as we try to avoid that thinking of us versus them. So Graham Mitchell from El Cajon, California, I hope you enjoy this interview and uh, we'll get it running. Okay, Graham Mitchell, it's good to see your face. Thanks for coming on with me here today. It's good to see you, Connor. Thanks for having me. Oh, and I'm a little jealous you're hanging out in sunny San Diego. It is a pretty nice day today, I'm not going (laughs) to lie. Oh, well, tell me this. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I think your perspective and really your career is going to be so informative for the listeners today. Uh, Tell me just a little bit about your background. What kind of led you to this bit? What did you study in school to get you to the place you are today? Yeah, good question. I 
I grew up in the DC area. So everybody I knew, my neighbors, my parents, uh, my youth leaders at church, everyone I knew worked for the federal government. So um, working for the US government is a kind of a, in my mind, a noble thing. And uh, it's what I aspired to do. I wanted to work for State Department. I wanted to be a diplomat. So I went to uh, Brigham Young University, studied international relations, uh, graduated, and there was a recession going on. And so there was a, a hiring freeze at the federal government level. So I had a choice of uh, go back home and live in the basement and work at McDonald's or go to grad school. So I, I chose graduate school. I went to University of Southern California in, in Los Angeles, and I studied public administration. And one of the cool things that, that USC required is all of its, its MPA students get a local government internship. And so I, I found this job uh, working in a city manager's office. I had never even heard of the word city and manager put together growing up. <laughs> and uh, I found myself working there. And I won't, it's a long story, but um, I realized I had more impact as an intern than in people's daily lives than I would probably ever have in my career as a, you know, working as a civil servant in the U.S. government. And um, that's when I realized I want to be a city manager. And so I set a goal to do that. And so I worked for um, that city, which is Monterey Park. I worked for a place called Moore Park. Uh, in the meantime, I got married uh, in Los Angeles to my wife, Angie. Uh, and then I got my first city manager job in a little central California city called Farmersville. There is actually a city called Farmersville in California. Okay pretty rough town uh if you've ever seen the movie mcfarland that disney did about a cross-country coach yes uh farmersville is mcfarland i mean they're, they're almost they're very close to each other but very similar demographics similar mindsets so uh that was a great place to be a city manager i got to do everything there i was i was a city manager I was a finance director i was a dog catcher when the dog catcher called in sick I learned how to run the sewer <laughs> system. So I got to do a little bit of everything and really appreciate what local government means to people. So, and then um, after Farmersville, uh, my wife said, we got to move back to Southern California someplace. She was a fashion designer before we moved to Farmersville. So okay. I, I saw a city manager there, job. There isn't one. a booming fashion industry no, in Farmersville. <laughs> there's no fashion in Farmersville. Uh, but uh, there was a job in Lemon Grove, which is uh, a little community just east of downtown San Diego. And I got a job there as a city manager. I was there for 12, 13 years, briefly city manager in a place called Escondido, where I live right now in, in northern San Diego County. And I, I'm currently the city manager going on three years in El Cajon. So another community in San Diego County. That's awesome. So you said that you had never heard the word city and manager together. I would guess for a lot of the listeners, they're in that same boat. So tell me, what is a city manager? What do they do? That, that's a great question. What, what is question, what don't we do? We get to do a little bit of everything, <laughs> which is why I love my job. But this is the way I explain it. Um, a corporation has a CEO, sort of a chief administrative officer that runs the day-to-day the -day business. A municipality, a city is really just a corporation, right? And you have different departments that do different things. You're sort of your administrative departments, finance and 
in HR, but you also have sort of um, service departments like police departments and fire departments and planning departments and public works and sewer, all these things that go into making a city. Each of those departments has a director and then those directors report to me. So I make sure that, that the job is flowing and then I, I work directly for the city council who's elected. So that, that's an elected body. Mm-hmm. And they give me direction. They give me priorities. And then my job is to execute that direction and those priorities. Okay. Um, I think a good follow-up question then too for the listeners is explain what a city council member does. So yeah. you work for the city council members. They are elected. You are unelected. What do they do? So good, that's a really good question. They, they really should be sitting kind of overlooking the overall policies of the city. So they're really the legislative body. So they're, they're identifying where the policy directions need to go. Um, they look at, they adopt the budget. They uh, respond to complaints from residents. They make decisions on planning or, or land uses, you know, whether, whether a Walmart should go in this part of town or whether that should be density apartments. They make those decisions. Now staff will make recommendations of, Here's the pros and cons of that. But ultimately, as a legislative body, they make those big, really big, important decisions that affect our daily lives. Now, maybe I should know this. Is a city councilman paid? They are. It's, in most cities, it's, it's pretty nominal. Um, it's not a full-time job. I, I have okay. most of my, if they're not retired, they have full-time jobs. But they, they get a stipend, usually, a, a minor stipend. Okay. So one of the reasons that I wanted to bring you on is we're obviously in the middle of 2020, a presidential election year. And, you know, everyone all of a sudden starts to care a whole lot about politics every four years when it comes time to tune into a presidential debate and watch who you're going to vote for. But I have really been under the impression, you know, I always say, I think that local government has way more of an impact on your day-to-day life than whoever's sitting in the Oval Office. Would you agree with that? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, I completely agree with that. In fact, I mean, just, just think about your day-to-day um, or, or an average day. You wake up in the morning and probably the first thing most people do is go for their phone that's been charging all night, right? So that electricity was brought to you by a power line that was running through the public right of way controlled and maintained by your local government. Right. And, and you'll brush your teeth. That water doesn't come from the federal government that comes from your local government. Uh, you flush the toilet, uh, federal government doesn't clean the sewage. Your local government cleans the sewage. You drive down the street, most likely, unless you're going on the freeway, that's local government controlled or maintained. Uh, you go to the library, you play in a rec program later that day. Those are all local government things. And these are the things that affect us day in, day out. I'm not discounting the importance of what the federal government does and what the president does per se, but our president has very little influence on the way that a pothole is filled. Um, In fact, I dare to say has no influence on the way a pothole is filled (laughs) in your city, but your local public works department does, right? And so I think it is interesting interesting that there's a lot of people that have become uh, exposed to politics, which uh, I'll, it, it, for an old veteran like me, I'll admit it, it was a little annoying at first. Um, yeah. You know, post like, did you know 
there's something called the electoral college. And then, you know, someone explaining electoral college on, on Facebook. And I'm thinking to myself, where were you during civics in eighth grade, right? <laughs> um, but the more I've thought about it, I think I'm, I'm actually excited that people are caring at a level where they haven't before. But I, I would hope that that level they care for, for the president, I think, I hope it bleeds down to other races in the future, um, Congress, but, but even more importantly, probably your local elected officials, your, your city council members, your, your mayors. Yeah. And I think that leads us to, you know, the whole premise of this podcast is I think so many people dislike politics because of it being so divisive, that mm-hmm. it's so angry all of the time, that it seems very extreme. And I'm curious how you feel, is that dynamic there in local government as much? I'm going to say no, but I think the temperature out of Washington is having an influence across the country. And that's, that's not a good thing at all. I think the one thing that local government has as an advantage is local government is close to the people that they serve, right? And so you can look at, we'll just say any president of the United States, the likelihood that you have a relationship with that person or will ever have a relationship with the president is pretty slim, right? Very, very small percentage of Americans will have that, that relationship. You're not going to bump into them at the grocery store, but you do with your local council members. Uh, you have the ability to stand feet away from them every two weeks when they have a council meeting and you can speak directly to them at, uh, during a city council meeting, during public comment. Uh, they'll come to your house and, and have a, a neighborhood watch meeting in your living room. You'll see them at the grocery store or at church. It's a level of connection that I think allows for some more civility in our conversation. Sure. And you've seen this too. I think the more removed you are from the person you're talking to, the more opportunity for you to be uncivil, right? And so if you're hiding behind a keyboard on Facebook or posting on a blog or commenting on an article, it's pretty easy to be pretty vindictive and uh, hateful. It's a little more difficult to be that way when you're confronted face-to-face with somebody that's treating you nicely. So I think local government has that advantage that we're so connected or so close to the people that we serve that we know each other. So we have that relationship. But at the same time, you know, there was a time I think where, um, I think it's fair to say that, that council members, they, they're nonpartisan positions. So unlike, you know, running for Congress, there's, there's an R behind your name or a D behind your name, depending on if you're a Republican or Democrat. That, that doesn't happen in local government. Um, there's no R's, there's no D's, but everyone knows who the R's and D's are. And I can, I can tell you over the 20 years that I've been working as a city manager, I've, I've noticed more and more of that partisan politics creeping into the dialogue. I mean, it's always been there. It always influences uh, mindsets and policy directions, but it's never really been heavily in the dialogue. It's now emerging more and more, I think, in the dialogue that we hear in our local discussions. Sure. 
You know, and to me, I think it's interesting. If I, I think local government, I've recently been teasing my dad, like, dad, you're officially old because every time I'm around my dad now and we're driving around the neighborhood, he's always going to make a complaint about the high density housing that's been put into our neighborhood, right? Like, oh, yeah. this never used to be that way. And this yeah. is all going there, which, you know, I'm with him. I think it's funny. I tease him of like, this wasn't, this, our neighborhood isn't what it is 20 years ago. But to me, what is the Republican or Democrat argument there? Like, it's hard to put it into that sense. So how does that come to play in day-to-day policies? You know, I used to say there's no Republican, there's no Democrat way to fill a pothole, but there actually is. Um, okay. Uh, typically Republicans, at least my Republican council members, would like to contract out as much as you possibly can, right? Let free market handle that. So that's kind of more of a Republican perspective of the fill a pothole rather than having city staff do it that are getting large pensions, right? You would find a company, find the lowest bidder and uh, let the free market handle it. Um, where, where maybe a Democrat way to fill the pothole is, is you hire more staff and you do that more internally and you have maybe better quality control over that. So there are these Republican and Democrat ways to do every little thing. There's Republican and Democrat ways to address housing and density and transit. Um, and like I said, I think 20 years ago, I don't think it, it manifested itself as much as it does now, but I think it, it's more and more doing so. That's interesting. And do you have to find yourself personally staying pretty neutral? Do you try to stay out of it? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a saying that city managers should be politically astute, but politically disengaged, right? We shouldn't inject ourselves politically. Um, I mean, I'll just tell you, my, my goal is for people that I meet to have no idea where I stand on politics or who I voted for, right? And so yeah. mo- most of my, my liberal leaning friends think I'm a raging, there's a dog behind me, uh, a raging uh, conservative, and most of my uh, Republican friends think I'm a bleeding liberal, right? So that's a good place for me to be. And, and if you think about it as a city manager, I'm trying to represent, I not only work for the five council members, but I'm trying to represent everybody that lives in the community, Republicans, Democrats, independents, I don't care, those type of people. And if I were to come down strong as this is where I stand on X, Y, or Z, it would make it difficult for me to, to fully represent those people. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's do this. I, I want to talk about you know some specific policies that you've really felt part of. I know we want to talk about uh, kind of the defunding the police argument yeah. that's been talked a lot about this year. Um, but before we do that, just tell me a little bit about the demographics of El Cajon. What is El Cajon like? Yeah, yeah. El, so El Cajon is uh, about 15 minutes, 20 minutes from downtown San Diego. So pretty close to San Diego. I'm pretty urban. Uh, I'd say we're a bit of a tale of two cities. We have a pretty wealthy community in our city, but we also have, um, I'd say, a, a very, maybe some of the, the most impoverished members in, in San Diego live in El Cajon. So we kind of have sort of these two different groups of people. Um, we're a large city, we're 105,000 uh, in population. Uh, that makes El Cajon the sixth largest city in San Diego County. I, I know you're coming from Utah. We'd be, the, we'd be the fifth largest city in the state of Utah to give you a sense of okay. sizes. 
Um, we are a little bit unique. We have, we're less than 50% white. Um, we're less than 10% uh, black. We're about 30% Latino. And then we're about 20% of a whole bunch of other stuff. Asian, Pacific Islander, mixed race. But I think what makes El Cajon maybe more unique than most cities is we actually have one of the largest concentrations of Middle Eastern refugees outside of the Middle East um, are located in El Cajon. So uh, a lot of Christian, Christians, Christian Iraqis that escaped during the um, Hussein years uh, moved here. So Saddam Hussein was not friendly to, to Christians. And so a lot of them were refugees and immigrated to El Cajon, as well as Detroit. So those are the two big cities. Why El Cajon? <laughs> I, think, I think there was a couple, they're called, Cal, so Christian Iraqis are called Chaldeans. It's a sect of the Catholic uh -huh. Church. Uh, I think there was a couple Chaldean families that lived there and uh, good temperature. And they just sort of all continue to migrate. So interesting. It, it, it makes for a really interesting dynamic. For sure. Yeah. So with all that diversity, obviously the question of police reform has a lot to do with race right now. Like you cannot separate the discussion of, you know, policing in our nation right now with race. It has that undertone all the way throughout. And that's why I'm really excited to hear from your mentality, knowing that you're in a very different place from where I'm from in Utah from a diversity perspective. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts and experience with, uh, with just policing in general. Yeah. I, you know, it's, I think it's a conversation that's been needed. We've needed to have this conversation for a long time. And um, it's for actually for a lot of different reasons. And I'm not just talking about the systemic racism and um, the criminal justice systems impact on minority communities or, or people of color communities of people of color. Um, but frankly, I think over the years, we've gotten to the habit of just dumping every social problem that we don't know how to fix. And we just let 911 handle it. And uh, nine times out of 10, the fire department doesn't respond. It's the police department that's responding to those types of calls. So if I actually had our police department, we have a police analyst, I had her run some numbers like how many calls we did in the last quarter. This is just one, this is one quarter's worth mm -hmm. of calls. In that period of time, only 22% of the calls that our police department made were property crimes. So burglaries or robberies okay. or violent crimes. So a quarter of the calls we made last quarter were what I would call kind of traditional policing calls. The more, majority of the calls we're making are dealing with homelessness, mental illness. Um, someone didn't get the order at McDonald's right. And so 911 is called <laughs> to fix that. Uh, a neighbor looked at another neighbor unfriendly. And so now there's a fear of someone being shot. And so police are called. That. So I think our police departments have been, have been used probably in an inappropriate way. And it's a, I mean, a police officer is not cheap. They're expensive. They come with uh, a lot of training behind them. Uh, there's a lot of equipment involved with them. Just their body cameras alone. Think about all the data storage for, that's required for every police officer for every shift. I mean, it's, 
it gets into the thousands of dollars over a year per police officer just for data storage, right? So you take all that and we have that expensive piece of personnel focused on someone having a bad day. And um, it's, it's just not a good use of our resources overall. Um, I don't, I, I think there's a couple of cities that are starting to explore what to do. I, I'm curious to see how that'll pan out. I know San Francisco, for example, is sending social workers to deal with mental health crises. The, the problem is most mental health crises result in the need for some sort of police intervention, right? If you, if you have a, uh, a naked person running down the street, trying to throw themselves in front of a car, um, having a rational conversation probably isn't the best way to deal with the, the problem, right? Um, unfortunately, some level of force may be required in order to put that person into, you know, out of harm's way of themselves or from somebody else. So my fear with some of these experiments is that, yes, yeah, social workers will be called, but they're going to go, they're going to get there and go, well, we don't know what to do. We better call 911. And so we're back to where we were before. We haven't fixed the problem. I think society overall in our country in particular has really neglected mental health issues and drug use issues. And um, we've just been addressing symptoms or uh, we've been addressing the, yeah, the really more the outcomes and we haven't really been addressing the root problems. And so I think until we, we get our head around how to do that, um, I think we're gonna have the exact same thing we've been having year after year. I don't think it matters how many commissions we put forward or uh, more body-worn cameras. I think as long as our police departments are so overtapped with sort of these, these non-police calls, we're gonna continue to have these types of problems. So tell me then, like I've heard different things when it comes to defunding the police of, does that mean, I mean, obviously the most extreme way to look at that phrase would be, let's get rid of the police and stop paying them and they are violent and make society worse. Or there's this mindset of like refunding the police. Let's allocate that money differently or put it in different places. Or it's let's give the police department more money for better training, more, uh, you know, how to handle a situation that, inquires, uh, that requires force or how to, enter, uh, how to handle mental illness. What are your thoughts? I mean, you look at the budgets, right? Like you see those numbers where most of us don't have any idea what that would be like. What's your thought on kind of the specifics to how we would even do that? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think rather than defunding the police, it's rather reprioritizing budgets, right? And, and allocating resources to the best place they can, whether, whether that be, you know, money, money, or whether that be bodies, right? Which, which costs money at the end of the day. Um, the challenge though, this is the big challenge is that one, it's everything we do is politically charged, right? So, so everything's going to be scrutinized. And so whatever we do has to be perfect the very first time, you know, if, if you were to tell the Wright brothers, oh, by the way, you need to build an airplane and, um, <laughs> and it, it has to fly perfectly the first time. And there will be hundreds and th thousands of lives at stake based on your ability to create an airplane. You know, the Wright brothers would have, would have never built the airplane, right? Yeah. Because they knew that the, the risk was low for failure. There's no low risk 
for failure with, with where we're at right now because things are so charged. That's kind of number one. Number two, it does take money to do things like this. And so um, it'd be, I, I would, it'd be hard pressed for me as a city manager to tell my council, hey, tell you what, let's take 30% of the police budget and let's allocate it toward social workers. I have no idea if it's going to work, but let's just try it, right? And that, that's a pretty big gamble. Sure. I probably wouldn't have a job even as I recommended that. Um, this, is, this is a great place for the federal government to be right now. Um, bringing in the brightest, the smartest uh, criminologists, sociologists, law enforcement folks, and maybe create a couple pilot programs that would be funded that would take away a lot of that risk of the local government and um, allow some experiments to happen. And let's see, you know, let's look at the data because I think whatever we do needs to be a bit more data-driven than we have in the past. Um, I would love to be part of an experiment like that. I think, um, I think most police departments would like to be part of that, but, but most police departments don't want to um, take that risk just because of the baggage that would come with the failure of if it didn't pan out. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a real world, the way you're looking at that. No one else would even really have that perspective, but you're spot on of, you know, all these things sound great to just put into action, but not without knowing there's a ton at risk here. Uh, how did you see in El Cajon over the summer as, you know, police brutality was at the forefront of everyone's minds as riots and protests were happening? Did your police department change? Did they, how did they handle with these, handle these issues? And I mean, I know it was a tense time for the country, but how did that have effect in the day-to-day -day with your police officers? It, it certainly did. And we had... Um, I think two or three very peaceful protest marches in our community. Um, so we didn't experience violence like some of the other communities. In fact, the community just to the west of us, uh, its downtown was burned in parts of it. City Hall was attempted to be burned down. So it was, it was pretty violent. So we were a bit on edge, um, but I think we're used to it. I mean, we, we had a very high profile national news um, shooting of a, of a black man from a, a actually Hispanic police officer. Uh, the, the individual uh, was on a huge amount of cocaine and he pulled out a vaping device that looked like a gun and, and was shot. And we've been in federal court about it. I think we're wrapped up our court cases for the most part on that. But it was very, very high profile. We had day after day, week after week of protests in our community. This is about four years ago. And um, so I think our police officers feel very um, raw on this issue because they, they did experience this. And um, they know when they go out to work, this could happen any day. In fact, we, we just had a police shooting recently, shortly before some of the incidents that occurred over the summer. And, you know, as a, as a law enforcement agency, as a city, it was important to us, and this may be the big lesson that we learned, maybe that other communities could learn too from, is we got the information out immediately. We, we made a videotape of it. We took, we had, um, we, we caught the, uh, the shooting on three different body-worn cameras. Uh, we actually 
splice all three of the cameras together so you could watch each of them right after the other to get some context. Uh, and we put it out on YouTube almost as, as fast as we possibly could because we wanted the community to just be aware of, of what happened. We weren't trying to hide behind anything. Um, and it's one of those horrible situations where someone was trying to, you know, die at the hand of a police officer. So um, in that case, uh, it, putting the information out worked and the community accepted it and they saw it and they, they thought, you know, you, you hate to shoot people, but in this case, that was the right decision to make. But those are hard, hard conversations to have day in, day out, but it's conversations that we have day in, day out. And I think a lot of our police officers have felt a lot of the strain of that. In fact, um, I'm really worried that, that really good men and women in our country probably don't want to be police officers right now. And so who's going to take their place? I don't know. But it'll be interesting to see in the years, in the next few years to come. Yeah. Well, and that's the thought I've had. I mean, obviously it's a thankless job already, um, but then you add the, the tension of now assuming guilt or assuming that they're doing something wrong. And I, how much do you think there's just a mental and physical toll put on these police officers of having to be put in those situations and responding to those calls multiple times a day. I mean, I just feel like your fuse would get shorter and shorter. And how do you, you know, you look at a police officer that's been dealing with this for 20 years, that's maybe had a couple run-ins and then all of a sudden has a situation that goes south. Where's your head on that? Yeah, th that is a really hard place to be. And, you know, I talked about mental illness a little bit earlier on, but there's a real, I think our, our public safety personnel and local government really struggle with this. Um, not just police officers, but if you're a, a firefighter and you day in, day out, see horrific scenes on freeways, um, or if you're even our public works department, we, you know, we, we have a homeless cleanup detail where we go and we throw away a lot of things that belong to homeless people that are abandoned. And I've talked to my staff and it says it's, it starts weighing on their souls when they're impacting people's lives like this day in and day out. And I know it does with our police department. There's a really good documentary about mental health and policing. It's called Ernie and Joe. It's a, it's a HBO documentary, but they follow each, or this documentarian follows these two police officers in San Antonio that are part of a mental health unit. And it's interesting to see how much mental health, how many mental health calls they make in a day and maybe what's the best way to respond. But the, the big takeaway when I watched that documentary was the, the mental impact that that job has on police officers. And this is a profession where they don't like to talk about their feelings like this, this way or show, show um, fear or show uh, concern or, or, or hurt. And um, it's very, it's very damaging. So um, I think we as a society need to figure out how to support our police officers better. I think we need to, as a society need to root out police officers that, that um, have biases that will result in violence against people of color. Um, I think there's an overall um, change, shift that we need to have as an entire society about policing. And that's not a left issue. That's not a right issue. I think that's just a societal issue that we need to start talking about. Yeah. 
I think what you said there is is great. And I think it's a segue into what I wanted to discuss then of, unfortunately, this issue has been polarized. It's been turned into an us versus them. You know, it's a, well, do black lives matter or do blue lives matter? You know, you have these uh, opposing chants that are given by different sides. And how do you find yourself in this balance of you're the city manager, you you look after your police police officers the same way you look after the individual citizens. And so how can you support both of those groups and both those causes to be understanding and still listen, but still protecting both of those groups in society that feel their voices need to be heard? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky balance, partly because if you show any, uh, unfortunately, if you show support for one group, um, there are some in our society that will say you're a traitor to our, our side too, right? And so, so playing that neutral field is really important for me. And so it's something that, that I work hard at doing. One thing that I've done is I've made sure I've gone out and I've talked to a lot of my police officers just so they know that I'm there for them. And I get a good sense of what they're going through. Uh, going on ride-alongs, for example, is a great way for me to, to sort of engage with the police department and see kind of what, what goes on at two in the morning um, mm -hmm. and, and how difficult that is. And I think that's appreciated. But at the same time, it's important that, that I am listening to everybody else in the community, um, to those that, that are uh, maybe a little, that are less vocal or, or even more vocal than others and understand what their needs are. And, you know, if you think about it, um, I've actually, this summer has been, I've, I've had some pretty significant epiphanies as a, as a human being, as an American and, and as a city manager for sure. And on the areas of racism in particular. And um, I have not had to deal with racism. I'm a you know, middle-aged, middle-class white male. Um, I've been afforded a lot of things that that um, have come to me because of my race. And I recognize that. And I took a challenge this summer where I, every day for 21 days, I spent some time learning, reading, listening, um, talking, dialoguing about race issues. So I, I tried to focus for a 21 day period on just race issues. And it was uh, an eye opener for me. And I, it's something I wish I would have done a long time ago because I have a different appreciation for people that are different than me um, in our country. And, uh, and one of the goals that I have is to make sure that all voices are heard. Um, now, all voices, uh, it's not realistic to enact on every voice we, we hear, but it's important that all voices are clearly heard in a very honest and loving way. And that's kind of been my, my big takeaway from this summer and, you know, if you, have, if you have a tragedy or if you have a um, conflict or if you have controversy and if you don't learn from that, then you sort of wasted that, that opportunity. But my big takeaway is that I just need to be far more sensitive to racial issues. And um, it starts with understanding who I am as a human being and making sure that everyone knows that, that they are loved, at least by me and by the government that serves them. So that's something that's been important to me to do. I think if I, if I genuinely feel that way, back to your kind of the origin of your question, if I genuinely feel that way, I think I'll have more success at connecting with 
the with all different parties within the community where before um, it'd be easy for me just to dismiss half, half of our community. Yeah. Well, one, as you said that, I think everyone probably listening right now is, I hope everyone in government is what you just said right there. You know, that being willing to be open-minded and having your opinions maybe be changed over certain issues rather than just being so shut off to different uh, new methods of thought or different processes. And, uh, you know, and, and one, just a gratitude for people like you that step up. And, you know, I think your type of position is one again, that is thankless as well, just like those police officers. So thank you for what you've done for your community and the communities you've served. And I think we would all be a lot better off if we had more people like Graham Mitchell out there that would step up and be involved. But I think that the last question I kind of want to ask is for people listening at home that maybe don't have as much involved in you know, the government or this or that, they hear about these issues, but they do it as more of a spectator. Like, what can we do to feel like we are helping those around us and helping to lead to progress in our community, city, and ultimately country and world? That's a great question. Hey, hey, by the way, first of all, I I don't want to take any credit for something that I don't deserve. (laughs) There's a lot of city managers. In fact, I was at a, con- a virtual conference just last month of, it's called the, the International City County Managers Association. So thousands of us gathered virtually and we talked about, so every city manager in the country shouldn't be having these conversations right now. So I'm hoping that this is, this is way more than me. This is, this is something that's sure. occurring at, at every governmental level in the United States, at least at the local government level. So, um, so clearly I'm not unique in this. I'm hoping this is, this is uh, countrywide. So yeah. you, I love your question. What can you do? You know, the, I'm going to compare local government with federal government again. If you are really into diplomacy um, or commerce, you can't walk up to the State Department, knock on the front door and say, hey, can I volunteer at an embassy? That, that's just not a possibility, <laughs> right? But you can do that with your local government. You can go to the library and say, hey, I'm interested in volunteering. They will love you to come shell for two hours every week and just help out a little bit. You can go to the rec center and be a volunteer coach. I mean, there's so many things that we can do at the local level to get involved. And, and that gives time. And, and I recognize that not everyone has time, but you can also get involved with your local government. Your, your local government has city council meetings. Uh, they're all being, they're all televised now because of Zoom or on Zoom for the most part or some other format. So accessing your local government is super easy. They're not very long meetings. I'd check one out. Um, a lot of cities have citizen academies where you can sit down and learn more about your local government. I would join a citizen academy. A lot of police departments allow you to do ride-alongs. You know, it's interesting to talk about defunding or upfunding police, but you have no idea what a police officer does day in, day out, you should probably go do a ride along before you spout off um, of your, <laughs> your knowledge, right? So go get a little bit of knowledge first. And the great thing about local government is you can get that knowledge firsthand. You don't have to, list, you don't have to read someone else's uh, website or blog or Facebook post. 
um, or TikTok video, you can actually go experience it yourself. And it's pretty easy to access because we all live in a city. Oh, we, you could just volunteer to go do a ride along with a police officer. Absolutely. I, it's, I think that, I mean, that comes to shock me. I think about that of, I've had a few guests on the show that we've talked about race issues. We've talked about this and what a cool way to, and I know that I've had a few cops that I was going to have on the show, but they're not allowed to come on right now because their departments won't let them speak, won't let them say things like that for fear of what's going on and how it could be interpreted in the community. But I think that that personal connection and that real touch of just getting involved, it's the people, you know, the people that you have an impact in their lives are the ones that you come in contact with every day. And, you know, here we are in the middle of a presidential election and all the wildness and we feel the stress and the anxiety and, oh, what's going to happen? But I think just having that reminder of really asking yourself, what, what affects me and what impact can I have on others? And when that lens is looked at first, a lot of other things tend to kind of fall to the side and not seem to matter as much. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I've come to that conclusion too. Yeah. Well, Graham, I think this was a really good conversation. I, I actually think uh, with some other things that we've talked about that we possibly could do some follow-up to this on some other topics, because I think your perspective is one that we really can benefit from hearing. So thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I end every episode the same way. You know, I got to do that song. Clowns to the left me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck <laughs> in the middle with you. Ah, there you go. I knew you'd join with me. Thanks, Graham. And have a good one. We'll see you next time, everybody. Take care. Thanks for having me.